Section 17 of Roman History, the Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9, Vespasian, A.D. 69-79, to Part 1. The Flavian family, to which the next three emperors belonged, was of no high descent. It was said, indeed, though Suetonius could find no evidence for the story, that Vespasian's great-grandfather was a day-laborer of Umbria, who came each year to work in the hire of a Sabine farmer, till at last he settled at Riate. His father had been a tax-gatherer in Asia, and had taken afterwards to the money-lender's trade, and dying, left a widow with two sons, Sabinus and Vespasianus. The younger showed in early life no high ambition, did not care even to be a senator, and was only brought to sue for honors by the taunts and entreaties of his mother. Fortune did not seem to smile on him at first. Caligula was angry because the streets were foul when he was ideal, and had his bosom plastered with mud. He proved his valor as a soldier in many a battlefield in Germany and Britain, but fell into disgrace again because his patron was Narcissus, on whose friends Agrippina looked askance. Then he rose to be governor of Africa, and was too fair not to give offense. But his worst danger was from Nero's vanity, which he sorely wounded by going to sleep while he was singing, or by leaving the party altogether. Shunning the court, he lived in quiet, till the rising in Judea made Nero think of him again as a general of tried capacity, yet too modest and unambitious to be feared. By his energy and valor he soon restored discipline and won the soldiers' trust, and was going on vigorously with the work of conquest when the news came of Nero's fall. His son Titus set out to pay his compliments to Galba, and possibly to push his fortunes at the court. But hearing at Corinth that Galba too had fallen, and that Otho was in his place, he sailed back at once to join his father. Vespasian's friends now thought that the time was come for him to strike a blow for empire. The two rivals who were quarreling for the prize were men of infamous character and no talents for command, while the legions of the east trusted their generals and were jealous of the western armies. The rumor was spread among them that they were to be shifted from their quarters to the rigor of the German frontier to let others reap the fruits of war, and they began to clamor for an emperor of their own. Musianus, the governor of Syria, might have been a formidable rival, for he was brilliant and dexterous in action, of winning ways and ready speech, had moved among the highest circles, and won the affections of his soldiers. He was no friend of Vespasian, for he had coveted his post in Palestine. Yet now, from a rare prudence or self-sacrifice, or gained over, it may be, by the graceful tact of Titus, he was willing to waive all claims of personal ambition, and to share all the dangers of the movement. But Vespasian himself was slow to move. He had made his army take the oath to each emperor in turn, and he thought mainly now of the war that lay ready to his hand. The urgent pleadings of his son, the well-turned periods of Musianus, such as Tacitus puts into his mouth, the sanguine hopes of friends, might have failed to make him risk the hazard. But the soldiers' talk had compromised his name. The troops at Aquileia had declared for him already, 
and he felt that it might be dangerous to draw back. The prefect of Egypt, with whom Titus had intrigued already, took the first decisive step, and put at Vespasian's commands his important province and the corn supplies of Rome. The armies of Palestine and Syria rose soon after and joined the movement with enthusiasm. Berenice, Agrippa's sister, who had long since gained the ear of Titus, helped him with her statecraft and brought offers of alliance from eastern princes and even from the Parthian Empire. But Vespasian was still slow and wary. While Primus Antonius pushed on with the vanguard of his army from Illyria, not staying in his adventurous haste to hear the warning to be cautious, Mucianus followed with the main body to find the struggle almost over before he made his way to Rome. Vespasian himself crossed over into Egypt to take measures to starve his enemies into submission, or to hold the country as a stronghold in case of failure. There he heard of the bold march of the vanguard into Italy, of the bloody struggle near Cremona, and of the undisputed march to Rome. Then came the tidings from the northwest that the withdrawal of the legions had been followed by a rising of the neighboring races, and that even Roman troops had stooped so low as to swear fealty to Gaul. The Britons and Dacians, too, were stirring, and brigands were pillaging the undefended Pontus. Soon he learnt that the capital had been stormed and his brother killed in the blind fury of the soldiers' riot, but that vengeance had been taken in the blood of Vitellius and his troops. Each ship brought couriers with eventful news, or senators coming to do homage, till the great town of Alexandria was thronged to overflowing. Still he stayed in Egypt, till at length he could not in prudence tarry longer, for Mucianus, having set Antonius aside, was in absolute command at Rome, and his own son Domitian, a youth of seventeen, who had been left in the city but escaped his uncle's fate, seemed to have lost his head at the sudden change of fortune and was indulging in arrogant caprices. Titus was with his father in Egypt till the last, and pleaded with him to deal tenderly with his brother's willful ways, then left to close the war in Palestine, while Vespasian hastened with the corn ships on to Rome, where the granaries had only food for ten days left, and Mucianus had been ruling with a sovereign's heirs. Meantime the rising on the Rhine was quelled, it had its source in the revengeful ambition of Cavillus, a chieftain of the ruling class of the Batavi, who had twice narrowly escaped with life from the charge of disloyalty to Rome. His people had long sent their contingents to serve beside the legions. Bold, brave, and proud of their military exploits, they were easily encouraged to believe that they could take the lead in the national movement of the Germans. The frontier had been almost stripped in the excitement of the civil war, and the scanty remnants of the legions knew not which side to join and had no confidence in their leaders. To supply the waste of war, fresh levies were demanded, and the Batavi, stung to fury by the recruiting officers, listened readily to Cavillus. They rose to arms, at first in Vespasian's name, and then throwing off the mask, frankly unfurled the national banner to which the neighboring races streamed. The Treveri and Lingones tried to play the same part among the Gauls, and to lead them too against the imperial troops, who, half-hearted and mutinying against their leaders, laid down their arms or were overpowered by numbers. Some even took the military oath, 
in the name of the sovereignty of Gaul. It was but an idle title after all. The mutual jealousy between the several clans and towns barred the way to real union among them, nor would the Germans calmly yield to the pretensions of their less warlike neighbors. Soon, too, the tramp of the advancing legions was heard along the great highways, for the struggle once over at the center, no time was lost in sending Carialis to restore order on the Rhine. The wavering loyalty of the Gauls was soon secured, and it scarcely needed the general's proclamation to remind them that the Roman Empire brought peace and safety to their homes, and that even if they could rend that union to pieces, they would be the first to suffer from its ruin. To reduce the Batavi to submission, force was needed more than words, but the strife grew more hopeless as their allies fell off, and such as still remained in arms were routed after an obstinate battle in which a river's bed was choked with the bodies of the slain. The submission of Cavillus closed an insurrection, formidable in itself, but most noteworthy as an ominous sign of the possible disruption of the empire. It was left for Vespasian on his return to heal the gaping wounds of civil war, to restore good order to the provinces, and to calm the excitement of the capital after scenes of fire and carnage, and the vicissitudes of the last eventful year which had seen three emperors rise and fall. The city was beautified again and rose with fresh grandeur from the havoc and the ruin. The temple on the capital was magnificently restored, and all the dignitaries of Rome assembled in great pomp to share in laying the foundation stone. The temple finished, they were careful to replace some at least of what had been destroyed within it. Careful search was made for copies of the treaties, laws, and ancient records which had perished in the flames, and three thousand were replaced as in a national museum. But while the pious hands were dealing reverently with the greatest of Rome's ancient temples, the forces of destruction were let loose elsewhere, and the prophecies of woe upon the holy city of Jerusalem were nearing their fulfillment. To understand the causes of the rising in Judea, it may be well to glance at Rome's earlier relations with that country. The first of her generals to conquer it was the great Pompeius in 63 BC, and it was on his forcible entry into the temple that attention was directed to the religion of a people who had a shrine seemingly without a god. Falling with the provinces of the east to the portion of Antonius, Judea was conferred by him as a kingdom upon Herod, and Augustus afterwards confirmed that prince's tenure and added fresh districts to his rule, for it was a settled maxim of his policy to draw a girdle of dependent kingdoms round the distant provinces, and gradually to accustom hardy races to the yoke of Rome. In the case of the Jews, there seemed to be good reasons for this course. They were soon known to be a stubborn people, tenacious of their national customs, and ready to fly to arms in their defense. They were spread widely through the empire, in the great cities and the marts of industry, but men liked them less the more they saw them. They thought them turbulent and stiff-necked, and mutual prejudice prevented any real insight into national temper or any sympathy for the noble qualities of the race. It is curious to read in Tacitus the strange medley of gross errors about their history and creed, 
monstrous fancies gathered from malicious gossip or reported by credulous and ignorant writers. It is the more strange when we think that he must have seen hundreds of the men whose habits and beliefs he unwittingly misjudged, and one of whom at least wrote in his own days to enlighten the world of letters on the subject. At Rome, the Jewish immigrants were looked upon with marked disfavor. Under Tiberius we read that thousands of them were forcibly removed as settlers to Sardinia, where, if they sickened of malaria, as was likely, it would be but a trifling loss. In Judea the caprices of the emperors affected them but little, though they flew to arms rather than allow the statue of Caligula to be set up in their temple. But hard times began when under Claudius the country passed from the dynasty of the Herods to the rule of Roman knights or freedmen. It was their misfortune to be exposed to the greed or lust of men as bad as the provincial governors of the Republic, while zealots who mistook the times were fanning the flame of national discontent. They bore with the vile Felix, but at length the insolence of Gessius Florus provoked a hasty rising in 66 AD, which spread rapidly from place to place till the whole country was in arms. The general in command of Syria could make no head against the insurrection, which carried all before it, till the strong hand of Vespasian turned upon the rebels with resistless force the strong engine of Roman discipline. But the war which had begun in a hasty riot was persisted in with stubborn resolution. Towns and strongholds had to be stormed or starved into surrender, till the last hopes and fanaticism of the people stood at bay within the walls of Jerusalem and the lines of the besieging legions. Two summers passed away while thus much was being done, and the third year was spent in further reaching schemes of conquest, and the beleaguered city was left almost unassailed. It was at this point that Titus was left in sole command, eager to push forward the siege and to enjoy the sweets of victory at Rome. But he had no easy task before him. The city, strong by natural position, was fortified by walls of unusual breadth and height and amply supplied with water. Within were resolute men who had flocked thither from all sides to defend the shrine of their most sacred memories and the stronghold of freedom, and whose fiery zeal swept every thought aside before their duty to their country and their God. There were also others, more timid or more prudent, who better knew the force of Rome and feared the zealot's narrow bigotry. Thus mutual distrust and mutual slaughter weakened the forces of defense, after long months of obstinate fighting, discipline and skill prevailed over the dogged valor of the Jews. The holy city was taken by storm, A.D. 71, and the great temple, the one center of the nation's worship, was utterly destroyed. It was said that Titus was grieved to see the ruin of so glorious a monument of art. He had no such tender feeling for his prisoners of war, the outbreak which Roman misgovernment had provoked had been already fearfully avenged. Jerusalem was left a heap of ruins, and the defenders were dragged in their conqueror's train to die of misery and hardship on the way, or to feed the wild beasts with their bodies at the amphitheaters of the great cities on the road to Rome. End of section 17